You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. I'll invite you to turn with me now to your copies of God's Word to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. We continue our exposition of this short little book, three chapters. We finish up chapter one this evening. We'll move into chapter two in time, Lord willing. Paul's instructing a fellow minister of the gospel. It's kind of an apostolic apprentice, Titus, that he's appointed to stay here in Crete and do a pastoral ministry for a time at least. He's serving in Crete. And he's encouraging Titus to be faithful here in ministry in the context of this very young church. It's a very new church that, that Paul was played an important part in planting in recent missionary activities there. And it's in a highly pagan culture as well, as we'll see a glimpse of this evening. And so Paul is helping Titus navigate these difficult waters here in Crete. Let's turn our attention to the reading of this passage. We'll read from Titus 1 verses 10 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Amen. Well, this church in Crete was so young, it had no structure and order. And so Paul appointed Titus to bring order to this church, first by appointing elders, to appoint, appoint elders. These elders, as we saw last time, must be able to teach and to rebuke false teaching. He mentioned that again in passing last time. And that's why it's so important, as Paul said, in our previous passage again, for them to be able to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. They must hold firm to the apostolic teaching. They must know it well. They must be able to teach it and rebuke that which is false. And so here, Paul begins to expand on this, uh, this important point that elders must rebuke false teaching. He's emphasizing the importance of this part of the elders' work, where they must silence it and rebuke it and this ultimately is a form of church discipline of which Paul speaks. So we see in our passage, silencing and rebuking false teaching is necessary for the church's health. Silencing and rebuking false teaching is necessary for the church's health. And we'll have three headings this evening that we'll explore. The first is the problem of the false teachers. Second is the response to the false teachers. And then third, the goal of the actions taken. So the problem, the response, and the goal. So let's first look at the problem. What is the problem here? Well, the problem is false teaching. 
Paul helps us see the nature of false teachers, what they're doing, what they're going, why they're going about what they're doing. He says, first, at the root of all of this, the root of this false teaching is pride. He begins in verse 10. <clears throat> there are many who are insubordinate, people who refuse to submit to proper authority. And in this case, those who refuse to submit to that teaching of the apostles, the teaching, the teaching apostle of the apostle Paul. And in our context, the teaching of scripture, which is that apostolic record that has been passed down that we have today. So those who are insubordinate, these are ones who are prideful. Think, I know better than God's word. I know better than the apostles' teaching. So they first are filled with pride. And that begins this trajectory that they're on of false te teaching. So at root, we have pride here. And second, these are people who are not interested in substance or in truth. He continues in verse 10, they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers and they're deceivers. These people are, 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 they have a lot to say, a lot of words to say at least, but not much substance behind it. They can talk for hours, they never really say anything. And they are deceivers. They're really good at wordsmithing. They're really good at sounding good with their words. They're really good at, at drawing you in and, and deceiving you making you think something is true when it is not. This is actually a particularly strong temptation in the Cretan culture, we learn. Paul even cites a well-known Cretan, he calls him a prophet, who himself said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, in verse 12. That's a Cretan saying that about his own people. This is probably, as if you have the ESV, you'll see a footnote, it says this is probably uh, a quote from a, from a guy named Epimenides. Epimenides, he lived five or 600 years before Paul did in the first century. And at this point, he was a real man, a philosopher and a poet. But by this point, he was kind of a mythological figure. There were lots of stories told about him. Apparently, he took a nap for 27 years and woke up the same age. I think we have a story about that in our culture too. But there's all kinds of, of fascinating, fanciful, apocryphal stories that developed about this Ep Epimenides figure. And so Paul cites him and says, even this guy highly revered in your culture, he knows Cretans are liars. These false teachers are liars. And the point is this, that even Cretans understand the societal sins of the culture. And in this context, they are especially prone to lying, to people being deceivers. It was a part of their culture. In fact, the verb form of the Greek word Crete the, the, verb form for, the verb form of that word came to mean to lie. So to, to cretinize means to lie. They were so well known for it. So Paul is saying, look, these are prideful people who are just like their culture. They're gonna lie to your face. And so he goes on to say, they don't just have pride. They don't just, they're not just interested in lying to you and, 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 and being light on substance. They see an opportunity to, opportunity to exploit church members through their influence. We see this in verse 11. They are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're teaching with the goal to gain something out of it, shamefully gain, gain something out of it. This gain maybe is financial, making money off of this. But I think oftentimes this gain may be a little bit more um, uh, undetected. There's a gain of influence, a gain of popularity, a gain of control. There's all, all these subtle things that, that drive us maybe to say something. 
or to tell a white lie or to embellish the truth a little bit so that we maybe can look a little bit better in other people's eyes. But these false teachers, they see an opportunity to exploit and they take it for shameful gain. So maybe the error isn't as blatant as somebody like Kenneth Copeland who tells you that, that if you give Kenneth Copeland some money, God's gonna bless you a hundredfold. Maybe it's not that blatant, but it's just as deadly because these false teachers are using you. They don't care about you. They wanna use you for their own game, gain. And what an affront to the gospel this is. This message that what Christ has done that cost him his life, that is absolutely free for you. They're now trying to profit off of it. They're trying to use what Christ did and make a buck to look good in your eyes. What an affront to Christ to make Christ nothing but a means of shameful gain. There's pride. There's a lack of care for the truth, an opportunity to exploit. We have a few hints of what specifically might be taught in this Cretan context. We don't really know. There's a reference in verse 10 to those of the circumcision party. This is probably a reference to what we call the Judaizers, uh, Jewish uh, people who were converted to Christianity. And in, in error, they thought you had to, yes, trust in Christ, but you still had to keep the Old Testament law. Or particularly, men still had to be circumcised to be a Christian, to be saved by Christ. And the book of Galatians is written about this, this error, this lethal error. And it's a legalism, a rejection of the gospel of grace, freely given by God in Christ, and adding requirements, human requirements to it. Verse 14, he, he had, has a couple other hints. He talks about them devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. We don't really know what these Jewish myths are, but it's possibly teachings by Jewish rabbis about extra biblical stories or fables, genealogies. And maybe these people claim to be part of a a privileged genealogy coming out of the Old Testament. And so therefore, maybe you should listen to them. You should give them a tithe. You should give them something that they want. They're using these stories, these uh, uh, apocryphal tales for their own gain. And then there's also these commandments of people particularly people who turn away from the truth, but nonetheless, these are commandments of people, adding a requirement on top of scripture, saying, no, salvation is not just by faith alone in Christ alone, received by by God's grace alone. No, salvation is that plus something else, plus another requirement. You must do X, Y, and Z in order to earn God's favor. These are commandments of people. Any moral requirement not found in scripture, this is a legalism, this deadly And it so easily harms Christians. When it's taught and promulgated, it so easily turns us back from the salvation by grace to now a salvation that I have to work and earn. So that's why Paul is calling this out. This is theology, this this is bad doctrine that's not just missing the mark on some of the finer points of theology, but it's a sinful, prideful heart that leads one to act selfishly instead of for the, the good of the church. Instead of caring for Christ's flock, they're trying to steal Christ's flock and sacrifice them on their own altar for their own gain. These false teachers were deadly and are deadly for God's people. And we see some of the effects of them. Paul mentions three. The effects of this false teaching is first, it's upsetting whole families. We see in verse 11, it's upsetting them. This word for families is the same term. It's also used for households. It's upsetting whole households. And this could possibly be a reference to churches, 
Households, often they gathered in households. So it's a reference to congregations, potentially. They're upsetting entire congregations and churches. And even if that's not the case, there's still the reality that this false teaching is causing division, whether just in a biological family or in a congregation. Causing division, consternation, conflict, uncertainty, upsetting people, teaching new doctrines and new things that the apostles never taught. And there's now disorder among the church that needs to be resolved for the peace and the purity of the church. So there's up, they're upsetting people. And we see in verse 15, both their minds and their conscience, consciences are defiled. I think it's probably speaking here of just the teachers, the false teachers. Their false teaching is defiling their minds, is defiling their consciences. And so we see without truth, there is no purity. If you depart from the truth, you defile the way that you think and know. And even more than that, if you depart from the truth, your gauge of right and wrong is disoriented. Your conscience is seared. You no longer are convicted of sin. Your conscience lets you wander far afield from that which is good and right. So their consciences are defiled. Their thoughts are defiled. And this leads ultimately in this concluding statement of verse 16, spiritual self-destruction. They profess to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Not only do they have bad theology, destructive theology, but now it's led to destroying their own lives. You shall know them by their fruits. You shall know them by their works. Their works are not good. They don't leave a wake of health behind them. They leave disorder. They leave leave upset families. They leave destruction in their wake. And they themselves, without true knowledge of God, are walking in disobedience and sin and are themselves subject to destruction. We need to be careful of false teachers today. This is not just a once upon a time story for us. We need to watch out for those ideas that creep into the church. And there's too many to name Think of the so-called federal vision, right? Some of these ideas that help, that, that, that undermine the gospel. There's so many of them. And that's why we all need to hold fast to the apostolic truth, the biblical truth that God has given us in his word. But I do want to mention one example. I think one perfect example of the kind of false teaching that Paul talks about, and that's any teaching which compromises the biblical teaching that sexual relations are reserved for and the, indeed are designed for the benefit of a biological man and a biological woman who are married. This is the foremost place where Christians are attacked today, our sexual ethic, the biblical sexual ethic. And there's much to be said here about the biblical basis, why it's good, why it actually allows us to flourish when we hold fast to it. But I want to say this. There are lots of Christians who struggle with a lot of things. Some struggle with sexual attraction to persons of the same sex. Some who struggle with sexual attraction to persons of the opposite sex who are not their spouse. There's some who struggle with a sense of being uncomfortable with their own given biological sex. But I want to tell you that struggling with these things is not the false teaching that I'm talking about. 
These things are great temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. And not one of us is immune from temptation. We all face temptation every day of various kinds, whether it's these sexual temptations or whether they're other temptations. But I want to tell you today, if you struggle with these things, with these kinds of particular sexual temptations, I want you to know Redeemer is a place for you. I want you to know that this is a congregation that wants to come alongside of you and care for you. This is a place where we want to hear your struggles. We want to know what they are. But I want you to also know that we do not want to encourage ungodly desires and sinful temptations. We want to see the fruit of the sanctifying work of God in your life. And we want to walk with you to that end because we care about you and we love you. We want to see where natural God-glorifying desires begin to grow in the gospel-saturated soil of the hearts of his people. So don't hide your struggle from others in the church. You don't, you, you, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. We want to walk with you. Bring it out to the light. You're not alone. And we want to stand with you in the fight. And you may not see complete victory in your life in this or in any other sin. We're all going to be fighting temptation till the day we die, but we all will strive for holiness every day. We all are killing sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit is enabling us to kill sin in our lives of one kind or another until our dying day. So saying all of that, we stand strongly against any compromise of the biblical sexual ethic say sex is for anything other than a married biological male and biological female. It's a wonderful gift God has given for us. This teaching that has been unanimously attested to by the church until very recent days. We will hold fast and not allow false teachers to come in to redeem our church and drag us away with them. Let's be alert to this and to all corruptions of the truth. This is the problem, false teaching. Let's look at the response. What should the response be to false teaching? And it's simply this. Titus and these elders are to silence them and they're to rebuke them sharply. You see this in verses 11 and 13. False teaching cannot continue to go on. It must be stopped. There must be actions taken to first stop the teaching, removing these people from places of influence and authority. Second, we have to correct the teaching that's, that's, that's been taught. Correct it to the false teachers themselves, but also to the entire flock, all those who have heard the false teaching. We need to correct it and go back to the apostolic teaching on these matters. And then third, at times, as we see later in Titus and Titus 3.10, if these false teachers persist, if they do not heed the warning, if they will not heed the rebuke, we must, as Paul says, have nothing more to do with them. They are eventually cut off from the body of Christ. They have that prideful spirit that refuses to be corrected by God's word. And ultimately this indicates one who does not trust in Christ. And so they must be cast out of the body. It's a strong word. It's not just to rebuke them, but to rebuke them sharply. We can't just be nice all the time. We can't just dance around issues and hope problems go away. 
This is taking it on directly, calling a spade a spade, being able to effectively argue and reason, not just emote like our world likes to do, and to demonstrate how this teaching of the false teachers contradicts God's word, God's good word, God's good design. And so we see the eldership is not for men who lack, lack conviction and lack courage to do these things when called upon. I think there is one caveat at least here, is that not all bad theology rises to this level of false teaching. So don't be afraid if you're in a community group, you say something off, we're not coming after you. This isn't a matter of saying one wrong thing and we're gonna bring all the armies after you. That's not what's going on here. Because remember, this is a serious level. This is the kind of error that begins with pride. This isn't a misunderstanding. If you don't begin with the pride, you are going to conform yourself to God's word. When an error is pointed out, we'll say, yeah, I'm wrong. God's word is right. None of us who come to scripture with a humble heart have a vested interest in being wrong. We care far more than the Cretans do about truth. We desire truth. And so when the truth corrects us, we stand corrected. We want that. And so this is not for us learning together, us grappling with scripture together. Somebody says something wrong and they're corrected. When I say something wrong and I'm corrected, that's not what we're talking about here. Remember, we're talking about a prideful heart that doesn't care about the truth, that's using the, using the false, false things to destroy God's people. So don't be afraid of saying something wrong that's not what this is about. This is about, at root, unbelief, infiltrating the church and leading sheep astray. I think we all need to be on the lookout for false teaching. We all need to be ready to argue against it. We all need to be ready to, to call it out. Elders have a particular responsibility to this, though, maintaining the church's purity by keeping these serious errors out of the church. So let's conclude as we look at the goal here. What's the goal of all of this? Why does this matter? What are we trying to achieve anyway? Are we doing this just because the apostle said so? To vindicate them? Are we doing this because Paul planted the church and we just want to obey whatever Paul said? I was converted under Paul's ministry. I need to just obey him blindly. Are we just doing this so the elders can get power and influence? They can establish their control over the congregation? Of course not. And one misconception is often this kind of discipline is done to punish the false teacher. But that's not right either. The goal here is not to punish. It's not punitive. It's not a, a power grab. The goal here, I think there's two, two stated goals in our passage. There's many goals, but there's two stated in our passage. The first is to bring health to these families. Right? These, these families were upset. These congregations were upset. It's to bring back the health to the congregation, to the broader flock. People who've been confused, bring back the unity that was once there. Bring the peace back, the ability to live a quiet, and Christ, a quiet Christian life without the inside turmoil within the church. Being able to worship unencumbered with politics and what's happening, who's saying what. It's restoring health to the flock. And the second reason here is in verse 13. It's that the false teachers may be won back to the truth says that they may be sound in the faith. We're trying to reclaim them. We're trying to tell them what, they're, what they've done is wrong. Come back to the truth. You're denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
What you're proclaiming is no salvation at all. Come to him who is life abundance. Come back to Christ himself. We want them to come back to the truth, to win them back. Because truth about God is life-giving. This kind of false teaching obscures or denies outright what the apostles taught about Christ. And continuing that apostolic mission today at Redeemer Church in Hudson, Ohio, we, like Paul, we say what we do is him we proclaim. We want to come and proclaim that Jesus Christ, who came on this earth to die for sinners, and he died and on the third day he rose again. We proclaim this Jesus, the Jesus that says, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come and proclaim the God that can save sinners. We don't come and proclaim something for shameful gain, something that at the end of the day cannot save you. We say, come to Jesus Christ. Him and him alone can save your soul. Adding anything to the Savior as these false teachers were doing, adding anything to him as our Savior undermines everything. We either get Jesus plus nothing, or you get Jesus plus something and you lose it all. To be saved from judgment of your sin, him we proclaim, come to him. He was cursed on that cross for his people. To receive a new family identity for eternity, him we proclaim, come to Jesus Christ. He does not turn anyone away who comes in faith to grow in assurance, to grow in joy, to grow in patience, to grow in godliness, to continue to put to death sin, to grow in holiness, him we proclaim. Come to this Christ again and again and again. Rest your soul in him. He has done it all for you. And he's continually at work in his people by his spirit. This is the Jesus proclaimed by the apostles, proclaimed by scripture. It's the Jesus who lays down his life, the Jesus who calls us to take our cross and to follow him, the Jesus who lets none of his own ever be snatched from his hand. Any other teaching is a false teaching. Silence it, rebuke it. And brothers and sisters, let us enjoy resting in this real Jesus. To him we look and in him we trust. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are preserving your church. We thank you that there are those appointed to help keep the wolves away to keep these false teachings at bay so that we can come and enjoy Jesus Christ and nothing else. Because our only hope in life and in death is not Christ and something else, is that we belong both body and soul and life and death to our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our only comfort and to him we cling. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder that we bring nothing to you. We bring nothing to our salvation. We cling to Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen. 
Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.